preached, and I, w- I was here, but he was, he was preaching and bringing the, the Stephen saga of Acts 6 to 7 to a close. So for a guy who preaches like every week, three weeks without being up here feels like an eternity. So I'm, I'm a little bit more jacked up than I sometimes am, which is dangerous for you guys. I'm sorry to, to tell you. It's going to get wild in here. No, it probably won't. But anyways, uh, I'm excited to be here. And then, um, and, and to catch you guys up, if, you, if you've missed the last few weeks, here's kind of the... The, the, the landscape that we've been in. Uh, so in Acts chapter 6, we're going through the book of Acts in the New Testament, and in Acts chapter 6, there is a potential crisis in the church, a potential division, and they resolve it by calling a, a new group of leaders who are uh, most likely Hellenistic Jews. They're a different kind of cultural group of Jews who, have, who were raised elsewhere, outside of Judea. So they call this new group of leaders, and this enables the church actually to, to move forward. And these are men who are filled by the Holy Spirit. They're full of wisdom. One of them is a guy named Stephen. And, and Stephen is, is going around speaking persuasively about the kingdom of God. And this gets some people really riled up because he is, is kind of subverting some of the core elements of Jewish faith, like the temple and the law of Moses. So they haul him in front of the ruling council of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and he launches into the longest speech we have in the book of Acts, where he shows that these these elements, like the temple and the law, were all pointing to Jesus and have found their fulfillment in Jesus. They don't like that very much, but what they especially don't like is when he calls them uh, uncircumcised and stiff-necked. And I liked Nate's little joke about how this is a common insult he throws at his friends, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised fellow. Anyways, they don't like that very much. They drag him out and they, and they stone him to death all while he prays for their forgiveness. And we saw that there were all these parallels between what, what Jesus went through in his last day and what Stephen went through at the end of his life. And so you see this Christ-like death for, for a Christ-like man. So that's kind of Acts uh, 6 to 7. Now, one, one guy that we haven't talked a lot about who's important in this is a guy named Saul. Saul was also a Hellenistic Jew, born and raised in a place called Tarsus. And he was part of the, the sect of Jews called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were zealous about the law. They believed that the kingdom of God would come, that salvation would come for Israel if there was widespread obedience to the law. And so for a guy like Saul to see these Jesus-following Jewish people subverting some of, uh, some of the law, that, was, that, that felt really dangerous. That, that felt like this could undermine all of their human efforts to bring in the kingdom of God. And so Saul was, was quite passionate about stamping this out. In fact, it's quite possible that Saul led the charge against Stephen. Certainly when Stephen is getting stoned to death, those, uh, those who are executing Stephen, they lay their, their coats at Saul's feet, which is kind of a, a recognition of his authority. And we read in, in Acts 8 that Saul approved of their killing him. Saul's going to become a really important figure in the book of Acts. And here in Acts 8, his role is in forcing the dispersion of the church from Jerusalem. That's what we're going to look at today. But the key uh, actor in this, in this story is not, uh, it's not Saul, and it's not Philip, who we're going to read quite a bit about, and it's not Peter and John, who make a, a fun little superstar cameo in here either. It's the Holy Spirit. This passage tells us a lot about who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. So let's pray, and then we'll get into Acts chapter 8. 
Jesus, we pray that in this time, as, as we come and, and we, we seek, your, we seek your, your face, we seek the knowledge of you through your word, Lord, that you would, uh, that you would bless us, that you would, that you would speak to us, uh, Lord, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, comfort us where we need to be comforted, convict us where we need to be convicted, Lord, that, that your will would be done and, and that your kingdom would, would come in our midst as we, as we submit ourselves to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 8, and uh, we're going to start in verse 1, and, and we'll just kind of go, I want to make five points about the Holy Spirit, his identity and his work, and so we'll just read kind of section by section as we go through it. So Acts 8, verses 1 to 5. On that day, the day that Stephen was stoned to death, became a martyr. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. First point that we see about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit directs the mission of the church and actually directs the mission of individual believers. Now you wouldn't think that at first from this text, right? Because the church is just responding to the persecution that is being inflicted on them. It's, it's more like Saul seems to be directing the mission of the church because his rage, his, his becoming a tyrant and going from home to home and dragging off Christians, that's what compels the church to, to move out, to scatter from Jerusalem. But see, this is what God does. God takes the, the circumstances of the world and of our lives, he takes what looks to be evil, what really is evil, and he's able to, in Corey's words, jujitsu it. He's able to turn it and use it to accomplish his own purposes. I've said this many times, the words in, in Psalm 2, which I'll quote again, and I'm not going to stop until you start quoting, and even then I'll probably keep on going. Psalm 2 says, the, the nations rage in vain against the Lord and against his anointed one. The nations rage in vain. It's, it's all for naught, according, in, in, in their eyes, because God is still on the throne, and he's still working towards his purposes. And what's his purpose here? How does he use this to accomplish his purpose? His purpose is to move the church out and beyond Jerusalem. Now, if, if you were in the church in Jerusalem in those early days, that would have been a really, really exciting place to be. Good things were happening there. You had people coming to faith in Jesus every day. People continually being, not being baptized over and over again, but like new, you know, different people being baptized continually. You get what I mean. You had people being healed of their sicknesses. You had people living so generously, selling their homes, giving the proceeds to the poor. You had, you had this, this kind of joyful worship and community life together. If you grew, if you, if you spent time in that early church, you would have said, man, those days were so beautiful. You would have had such warm memories of those times. And yet, God scatters the church from Jerusalem. I have a friend and a mentor, Bruce Milne, who wrote a commentary on Acts. And he, uh, he, he has this little thing. He says, look, if, the if, if God did this to the church in Jerusalem that had so much going for it, then we all better be careful about our little Jerusalems. You know what I mean? Like, like those, 
what, 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 we, what we have is, is kind of our comfortable known in our lives, the question is, are you willing, if God calls you, to leave that? Are, are you willing to leave the comfortable known and enter into the uncertain unknown if that's what God calls you to? I think we were just singing a song about that, right? Something about, like, the, your feet and oceans. I don't remember the words. But it's kind of along those lines. Now, the thing is, if you're not willing, if you're not, if you're not willing to be obedient, God might allow something to compel it anyways. That's what happens in, in Acts, is that God allows this persecution to accomplish what he wants to see happen, which is this, this kind of dispersion of the Christians so that the word will be preached. That's what we read in Acts, verse, uh, Acts 8, verse 4, is that those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, remember the context here. They had just seen what can happen when you preach the word, when you proclaim Jesus. What happened? Stephen was stoned to death. They had watched a bunch of rabid opponents pelt Stephen with stones until he breathed his last. Now, when you ask most people how they want to go, it's, it's usually, you know, they want to die in their sleep without pain. That's not what happened to Stephen. And so you would think that maybe some of these disciples of Jesus would go, well, maybe we should shut up for a little bit, you know? Maybe we should lay low. We'll, we'll, we'll be quiet about this until things calm down, the dust settles, you know, then we'll, then we'll start talking about him again. But they don't. They're so passionate about Jesus, so, so passionate about telling people about him that they just go out and, and everywhere they go, they're like, this is who he is. This is what he has done. And we read particularly about a guy named Philip. Philip uh, was one of those seven men who were called and chosen in Acts chapter 6, along with Stephen and five others. He was most likely a Hellenistic Jew. And if he was, that means that he was used to he was used to living in cultures outside of Judaism. He was used to interacting with people who had different beliefs, different, a different worldview, which kind of makes him an ideal person to take the gospel and break new ground, to bring it to, the, to a new group of people. See, this is what the Holy Spirit does. He uses our, our experiences to, as, as part of our calling to share Christ with others. And where, where does Philip go? Where is this new ground? He goes to Samaria. Now, Nate talked about this a little bit last week, but Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Jews looked down on Samaritans. They, they saw them as being traitors and compromisers, and to use a bit of an ugly word, half-breeds. They, they, they saw Samaritans as people who were once part of the people of God, but had neglected that. They had intermarried, they had intermingled, they had abandoned uh, kind of the law and the temple and so on. So they were kind of like doing their own thing. And, and they had a, a kind of a syncretistic religion where they had, you know, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament and, and, and nothing more. But, but out of those five books, they did have a kind of belief in a Messiah of some kind. And actually, Jesus, in his ministry, had gone to Samaria and had, had revealed himself to be the Messiah. And there were quite a few people in Samaria who believed that this Jesus was, was the Messiah. So there was precedent for it, but still an unlikely place, and for, place for a Jew to go. Usually, they'd go all the way around. It would be like, you know, you want to go to Vancouver, but you really don't want to. So you take like a ferry over to Bowen Island, then you go down to Victoria, and then you take a ferry over to Tawas, and you're like, there, avoided. I don't know why you would avoid Vancouver, but if you did... That's kind of what Jews would do with Samaria, right? They'd go all the way around. But here's Philip, and he's going to Samaria with the good news of the kingdom of God, of what Jesus has done. 
Now, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Because we don't actually read about the Spirit in this section. Acts 1, verse 8 says this. Jesus gathers his disciples before he ascends, and he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. And you'd, you'd hear Jews kind of going, yeah, that, that's, that's all good. And Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here's Jesus giving, giving the church, giving the early church an itinerary. This is where you're going to go. This is where the gospel is going to go. And the Holy Spirit is going to be directing you in this. He's going to be empowering you to do this. And so when Philip goes to Samaria with the gospel, it is simply following the direction of the Holy Spirit. See, what, you know what we need as a church, and, and if you are a follower of Jesus, what you need, we need to be yielded to the Holy Spirit. We have to learn how to, to hear his voice and, and be sensitive to his voice and, and follow through in obedience. He might call us to, to stretch beyond our comfort zone. He might call us to do things we'd rather not do, but his plans are a lot better than your plans. They're slightly better than mine. No, I'm just kidding. They're way better than mine. They're way better. And when we follow, when we are obedient, it's, it's kingdom blessings galore. You've got to learn how to yield to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit directs the mission of the church. The Holy Spirit also empowers the mission of the church. That's what we see in verses 6 to 8. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed... They all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. So here's Philip heading north of Judea to Samaria. And things start happening. He's preaching about Jesus with, with passion. People are, are trusting. They're believing. People who are paralyzed, who are lame, are, are, are having their ability to walk restored. People who have impure spirits are being set free. And, and by the way, when I, whenever I come to stories about exorcism in the Bible, I do want to make this point because a lot of modern Western people believe that those kinds of stories, stories about the demonic, stories about supernatural evil, that that's like we've moved on from that. We, we've become enlightened that this is part of the, these are superstitious, superstitious relics of the past because, you know, we believe in science. Only what is observable empirically is true and real. And so if there's ever any strange manifestation, well, that's just, that's mental illness that can be treated medically. And, and sometimes it is. But actually, this way of thinking in, in, mo in the modern West, and I don't, I don't disbelieve in science, okay? I'm not like a, anyways, science is real. It's good. All that. We don't need to get into that. The point is, when this is everything, it, it ends up being quite simplistic, you know, to, to a hammer, everything's a nail kind of thing. If, if that's the only thing that you believe is real in the world, that actually ends up being quite a narrow view of the world. And not only that, but, but perhaps, perhaps it's a, a, a somewhat arrogant as well because almost every other culture in the world and, and every culture in, in history past has believed in 
the demonic and, and supernatural evil, both, both good, sorry, supernatural powers, both good and evil. And, and so here we are, we are, we're finally enlightened. We've discovered something nobody else ever has. And, and maybe that's true, but you'd want to be a little bit humble about this. You know, like, it's almost like may, maybe we should consider this a bit carefully if, if every other culture throughout all of history has always believed in this. And, and, and actually, maybe this modern Western dismissal of the demonic is actually to the devil's advantage. There's a quote that's been attributed to C.S. Lewis. It actually goes back further than him, than him that says that the devil's greatest trick was to convince people that he doesn't exist. That if he, can, if he can pummel people and oppress people and they don't even know where the hits are coming from, makes his job a whole lot easier. All that to say, I absolutely believe that, that the demonic is, is real and that it exists even here in Deep Cove, even here in North Vancouver, uh, and that we need to be aware of this. In any case, Philip is here, and, uh, and, and evil spirits are, are fleeing, and, and he cannot do this on his own. I dare you, if you ever do come across uh, you know, a, a demon, an impure spirit of some kind, I dare you to go it on your own. Actually, I, I care about you. Don't do that. There's a story later on in Acts, actually, where a bunch of guys do. They, they, um, they try to go on their own power, but they use the name of Jesus like a party trick, and it doesn't turn out well for them. It results in nudity and bleeding. More on that in, like, a year from now when we get there. Real cliffhanger, though, right? You're like, I want to know what's going on with this story. It doesn't go well. You can't do this on your own power. Try, try, try praying for people and seeing healing on your own power. It doesn't work. This stuff only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. Philip can only speak persuasively about the kingdom of God in a way that will lead people to believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. He can only, you know, uh, uh, exercise demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. And so the Holy Spirit empowers us in all kinds of ways. He gives us gifts. He gives us strength that we don't have on our own. Whatever it is, the Holy Spirit empowers our mission in order that the kingdom of God can break in and lives can be transformed. Spirit directs our mission, empowers our mission. Third thing is that the Spirit always, always glorifies Jesus. Verses 9 to 13. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. So here we've got a contrast between a guy named Simon and Philip. And Simon was, uh, he's described as, as a magi, as, as someone who is involved in sorcery. And you should not think about this as like some illusionist who's got a special on Netflix. The implication is that he is powered by the demonic. Second century Christian writer Justin Martyr said that, he actually said that, that uh, Simon was later worshipped and honored as a god in his own right in Roman religion. So, so Simon, you get the sense from this passage, wasn't somebody who minded that. He was a self-promoter. He boasted. And when people gave him this title, the great power of God, he didn't object to that. 
It's like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's who I am. You know, he was a rock star in Samaria. Everywhere he went, he had an entourage of people who followed him with awe and wonder. He was on a pedestal and he loved it. Now contrast that with, with, with Philip. Philip also has power and, and evidently the source of his power is quite a bit greater than Simon's because all of these people are oppressed by evil spirits even while the great power of God is there. But as soon as Philip shows up, they're, they're gone. They're sent fleeing. See, spiritual, supernatural evil is a reality, but it's always, always a counterfeit of, of God's power. It's, it's a poor imitation of God's power. God's power is always, always greater. You don't need to fear. If you are filled by the Holy Spirit, you don't have to fear supernatural evil because greater is he that is in you than the one who is in the world. So, so these spirits go fleeing. But there's also this. Notice that as Philip does this stuff that Simon couldn't even dream of, he always is pointing people to Jesus. He's preaching about Jesus. They're being baptized in the name of Jesus because this is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit always glorifies Christ. That's what Jesus says in, in John 16, that the Spirit glorifies him. In John 15, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to the disciples and says that when he comes, he will testify about him. That, that the Spirit always instructs people, points people to Jesus. By the way, I think this is probably the number one way that you can identify whether somebody is empowered by the Spirit or is doing things on their own power or by some other spiritual power. The question is, and whenever you see a movement, is Jesus being glorified? Is Jesus being pointed to? Because a lot of churches, they, they, they have a tendency to put an individual on a pedestal. A lot of big churches especially are built around the celebrity of a pastor. And so a man becomes a brand and the allure of that can be really intoxicating. I remember reading or listening, I can't remember in what form, but, uh, but Francis Chan talking. Francis Chan was, uh, he kind of became a big-time evangelical Christian celebrity. He wrote a book that sold millions. He was a pastor of a megachurch in California. He says he once walked into a conference, and, um, and on every seat uh, in the place there was a magazine, and his face was on the front cover of it. And he's like, oh, this isn't too bad, you know, look at me. And he sees people pointing at him. He hears people whispering, oh, that's Francis Chan. And, and he's kind of like, he's kind of liking the attention. He sits down and, and during worship, all of a sudden, he's deeply, deeply convicted. And he, he hears God say to him, essentially, you need to, you need to repent. This is not about you. Um, and, and Francis Chan realized he had become everything he didn't want to become. He just starts weeping, not like just like a little like cry. Like he says, like a big, ugly, like full out, like, wah! Like cry session, and in the middle of it, the host gets up and is like, hey, let's welcome Francis up to the stage, you know? Good timing, right in the middle of a cry session. Anyways, um, he realized this, I've, I've got to turn from this. This is not about me. If the Spirit's working through me, it's, it's all about Christ. See, Simon doesn't get that. Simon doesn't understand that. And, and even when he sees that, that Philip's power is greater, or by the Holy Spirit is greater than his, what does he do? He believes he's, he gets baptized, but he follows Philip everywhere. And actually the word there is, is actually more literally devoted. He was devoted to Philip. It's the same word we read in Acts 6 about the apostles being 
devoted to the word of God and to prayer. Like they are adhering to it rigorously. Simon doesn't, isn't devoted to the word of God. He's not devoted to prayer. He's not even devoted to Jesus. He's devoted to Philip. He's, he's drawn to Philip. He, he just wants to be close to Philip. See, this is an issue too. It's not just an issue that, that some leaders and pastors get on a pedestal and, and seek attention and ask for it. It's also that people receive ministry. They hear words through somebody by the Holy Spirit, but instead of being devoted to Jesus, they get devoted to that person. And so they, they, they kind of take whatever that person says without discernment, and, and they become disciples of this or that teacher instead of Jesus. And in the worst case scenario, they end up getting involved in personality-driven cults that lead to destruction, that lead way off the rails. So hear this very clearly. Your devotion is never to be to me as the pastor of this church. And your devotion is not to be to some Christian celebrity on TikTok or, or, or Twitter. And your, your devotion is not to be to your favorite author or to some megachurch preacher. It is to be to Jesus. And if, if you are ministered to through someone else, glorify Jesus for that. Not them. Not the person who's doing it. So the Holy Spirit directs our mission empowers our mission, glorifies Jesus. And, and the fourth thing we see is that the Holy Spirit kind of marks out God's people. Verses uh, 14 to 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. I think this is one of the more confusing parts of the story. Um, just to recap quickly, so, so the church in Jerusalem hears this. Hey, things are happening in Samaria. This is great. They send Peter and John, maybe just to check things out, make sure things aren't going off the rails here. Uh, Peter and John come, and we find out that the Samaritans have believed and they've been baptized, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. And it only happens when Peter and John lay their hands on them. And the question is, why? First of all, it, we, we'd like to know how they maybe knew that they hadn't received the Spirit, and then they did. Maybe they spoke in tongues. Maybe they actually saw flames of fire like they did in Acts 2. Maybe they were filled with this experience and this knowledge of the love of God. Whatever it was, it was clearly evident to them that they didn't have the Spirit, now they did. The question is, why, why didn't they get the Spirit when they first believed? Now, some people think, well, maybe it's because they didn't really believe or because, because Philip wasn't really anointed by the Spirit, but that's not the indication in the text at all. Other people think that, that maybe there's, uh, and, and some Pentecostal Christians believe this, that maybe there's kind of like a two-step or even three-step kind of process in, in becoming a Christian. There's, there are additional blessings. So, so you might believe and be baptized by water, and that's great, you're saved then. But later on, you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit as kind of a second blessing in that this is kind of what happened to the Samaritans. But I believe that's not really the pattern that we see in the scriptures. And I actually think there's, there's something historically contextual about this here. Uh, to track this back a, a little bit. So I said before, Jews saw Samaritans as being a different group 
of people, right? They have long ago abdicated their status as God's people. So a whole separate thing going on, kind of related, but, but, but separate. The Samaritans didn't have the, the prophets like the Jews did, all the promises of the prophets. And some of those prophets had promised that God was going to make a new covenant with his people, and that a marker of this new covenant would be the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So through the prophet Ezekiel, God said that I am going to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will put my spirit in you. In Jeremiah 31, we read about this new covenant God is going to form with his people where he's going to write his laws on their hearts and minds. And then we read that God says, I will be their God and they will be my people. The presence of the Holy Spirit marks them out as his people, a new covenant, a new, new relationship. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says, when you believed, you were marked in him, in Christ, with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like a seal. Now, you, know, you know what I mean by that? It's like all the shows my wife watches in like 19th century England. That's what I think of with like, the, I don't know why, like all, like just all 19th century England. And there's always like a seal, right? Like you're, you're sending a letter and you like mark it like this is really from me. And we don't do that very much anymore, but the seal authenticates it as genuinely coming from somebody. And so the Holy Spirit marks out people as authentically belonging to God. That's the function of the Holy Spirit. Does, are you tracking with me so far? So now you get Acts 8. And, and what is the significance of the Holy Spirit waiting until Peter and John show up? Well, Peter and John are representatives of the church in Jerusalem. They're leaders. They've been there from the start. They walked with Jesus. They're kind of like, if you think about the, the OG Christians, it's Peter and John, right? And so they show up, and the Holy Spirit comes, which I think signifies that these are not two separate but equal movements. That this is not like a tier one and a tier two. That somehow these Samaritan believers are a second class of Christians. It signifies that the Samaritan believers don't need to become Jewish in order to be part of the people of God. It says that they are as much a part of this as those believers in Jerusalem. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's one, one faith, one baptism, one God. What an incredible thing for the Samaritans to know that despite how they knew the, the Jews looked at them, despite how they saw themselves, that now by faith in Jesus, they were as much a part of this new people of God as Peter and John were. And this is true of you today too. That if you do have the Holy Spirit, if you, if you have this, this confidence in the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, if you have confidence in your status as his children, if you, if you have been filled with a power that is, is beyond yourself, that is the seal, the marker that you are authentically God's people, that you are his special possession, that you are as much a part of this as Peter and John and all those first disciples in Jerusalem were. Isn't that good news? Isn't that incredible? That's true of you today if you have the Holy Spirit. He marks you out as God's special possession. You belong to him. 
Let's go to the fifth and final point here, verses 18 and on. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, and he said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Just quickly on that last part, that's beautiful, that Peter and John, with all that they may have thought about Samaritans, see this is a fertile harvest field. We're sticking with this. They travel around bringing the good news to others. Now what this, what this passage shows us, we talked about the Holy Spirit directs our mission, empowers our mission, glorifies Jesus, marks us out as God's people. Fifth and finally, the Holy Spirit is a gift. And Simon doesn't get that. Simon thinks that the Holy Spirit can be bought. He has been in awe of Philip and the, and the things that he does and says, but now he's like, whoa, these guys, they're doing something even different than that. I, I want to know how to do this. He thinks that Peter and John's impartation of the Spirit is, is, like, is, is, is like the magic and the sorcery that he has learned before, that it's, that it's like a power that can be manipulated, that, that he can learn a certain technique to be able to do this. And, and you wonder also if for Peter, he looked, or sorry, for, for uh, Simon, he looks at this as an opportunity to regain his status. You know, he's been knocked down a few pegs now when these guys showed up. And so maybe he's thinking, well, if I can get this ability, I can resume my place on the pedestal. I can be, I can be somebody everybody looks up to once again. Now see, this is not just an innocent mistake by a new believer who doesn't know any better. Simon's heart is so, so very far from God. And Peter sees this. By the Holy Spirit, Peter looks at him and discerns that this is a man full of bitterness. He's captive to sin. His heart is not right with the Lord. And so he urges Simon to repent so that he doesn't face God's judgment. This is a little bit like the, uh, the Ananias and Sapphira thing, except Simon actually gets a chance to repent. It's like Peter's going soft in his old age. You know, it didn't, didn't, didn't just strike him dead right there. Instead, it gives him a chance. Or maybe, Anyways, no, that's not, it's not up to, to Peter. Moving on. It's better when I don't go off script, right? Like, just, Craig, just stick with what you're saying here. So um, where was I? Uh, he, give, he, uh, he urges him to repent so that he doesn't face judgment. But the question is, does Simon repent? Does, does he actually turn from this? In verse 24, we read that he asks Peter to pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Notice that Simon isn't praying himself. He's not doing what Peter told him to do. He's not, inter he's, not, he's not seeking the Lord. He's not actually repenting. He's begging Peter to take back what he said. See, it's probably because, as we've seen over and over again in this passage, Simon's faith is not in Jesus. Simon's faith is in created things. Simon's faith is in himself. It's in other impressive humans like Philip and Peter and John. 
His faith is in money, but it's not in Jesus. And so far from receiving this gift of, you know, blessing others with the Spirit, he actually misses out on the Spirit and this life that he could have had altogether. See, the Holy Spirit is a gift. And if you, uh, if you get a gift, by very definition, it's not something that you can purchase. Adults struggle with this, right? And I, I've, I've, I've been guilty of this too. Somebody wants to give you a gift and you go, no, 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 I can't. I could never, I can't take it. Let me, let me pay you a little bit for it at least, right? I, I could never receive this. Kids don't do this, right? If I give my kids a birthday gift, they're not like, oh, daddy, that cost 20 bucks? Here you go. And if your kids do that, that's weird and you should talk to them about it. Because kids get it. This is a gift. I can't buy this. I can't purchase it. See, the, the Holy Spirit is a gift that can just, can, can just be received. That's our job is to receive the Spirit by, by, by putting our faith in Jesus, by surrendering our lives in trust to him. That's how we receive this gift. But you know what? I, I think there's another issue here, and I want to close with this. Because I, I don't think, I, I don't know that many people who are like Simon. There are probably some. There are some people who see the power of the Holy Spirit and, and they want it and they try to get that power by illegitimate means. Maybe you try to purchase it through, through money or good works or status in the world or whatever. There are probably some people like that. But I think most of the people I know, including many Christians, don't really desire the power of the Holy Spirit at all in their lives. They, they seem to be perfectly content with living a spiritually barren and fruitless and powerless life as long as they pay the bills and get their four weeks vacation and everybody's smiling, like that's good enough. A.W. Tozer, a writer from last century and pastor, he said this, the church has tragically neglected this great liberating truth that there is now for the child of God a full and wonderful and completely satisfying anointing with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. What Tozer was saying there was, uh, you know, that I think he would say, every believer receives the Holy Spirit when, when they believe. You receive that gift. But, but the Bible also says it's possible to quench the Spirit. It's evidently possible to live in negligence of the power of the Spirit, to rely on our own strength instead of God's strength. And, uh, and, and when that happens, well, we've, we've, we, we've, we've lost sight of, of, of the calling here. What Tozer says is that, 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 that so many churches and so many believers neglect this. So we're, we're, not, we're not like Simon. Simon at least got that. Simon at least wanted the power of the Holy Spirit. That's one thing we can actually learn from him. Because when we do desire more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we desire to be filled by his strength, and unlike Simon, we surrender in faith to Jesus, our trust is in him, then things change. Then the Holy Spirit is able to direct our steps. Then the Holy Spirit is able to empower us with gifts from above. Then the Holy Spirit is able to glorify Jesus through our lives. Then the Holy Spirit is able to, to instill in us a confidence that we truly are God's people. When we desire more of the Spirit and we surrender in faith to him, 
revival comes. May that be true of you and I today, and may that be true of our church. Amen? So Holy Spirit, we simply want to invite you to fill our lives and to fill our church that we would not neglect the gift that you have given us, that we would not try to attain it by faulty means like Simon, but that through faith, Lord, that our, that our hearts would be fully yielded to you. So I invite you right now in this, in this space, if you know that there are, are um, things in your life that you uh, are holding onto that inhibit the filling of the Holy Spirit. If there are mindsets or, or sins or uh, hurts and wounds that you're holding on to that inhibit the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, I want to invite you now in, the, in, this, in this moment to say to Jesus, it's yours. Take it. Clear the way. I want to be fully surrendered to you, fully yielded to the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to be, we want to live this out. We want to be directed by you, even when it's beyond our comfort zone. We want to be empowered by you. We want our lives to point to you, Jesus, not, not to be exalted ourselves, but to point to you. We want to know, Lord, that we truly belong to you. So, Lord, we want to receive this gift and surrender to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.